This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today we have E. Kyle Romero, who is a visiting professor of history at Loyola University, Maryland. He teaches U.S. foreign policy, immigration, and global migration, and the history of humanitarianism and human rights. He is currently working on his first book titled Moving People, Refugee Politics, Foreign Aid, and the Emergence of American Humanitarianism. That's quite a load that you're taking on. <laughs> I'm trying my uh, best. You know. <laughs> thank, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. We first got in, in contact with your work through your Washington Post article, which we thought was very insightful. It was titled Nativism in U.S. Politics Has Thwarted Refugee Resettlement Before. So uh, I would like to start, uh, what is the general status of resettlement efforts for Afghans today? And what progress do you expect to see in the coming months? Sure, uh, great question. So some kind of like important context that I feel is, is often missing in the discussion of uh, refugee resettlement and refugee movement, uh, particularly in Afghanistan, is that uh, Afghanistan, of course, there's a refugee crisis going on there right now. But the country has actually been undergoing successive refugee crises for the past 40 years, pretty much, uh, ever since the Soviet Union first invaded Afghanistan in the 1980s. And uh, the UNHCR, which is the UN Refugee Agency, uh, currently estimates that there are around 6 million displaced Afghan people across the globe. So that's about 3.5 million displaced internally and 2.5 million displaced uh, globally. And so this is by no means to downplay the incredibly important role of the United States in causing a lot of these these displacements. The majority of those uh, refugees were caused by the US military intervention, but just kind of to contextualize that this is part of a much broader and longer historical process where millions of Afghans have been displaced and it's kind of successive crises as opposed to a you know current refugee crisis. But for resettlement now in terms of this particular issue, uh, resettlement of course requires physical movement, right? So evacuation is a hugely important part of resettlement. And as of last week, uh, tens of thousands of Afghans had been evacuated from Afghanistan through Kabul airport by American, British, and other European military flights. Um, This has been the main focus of news in the US, right? The kind of military evacuation. Uh, However, it should also be noted that the majority of refugees that had fled from Afghanistan were actually evacuated to other countries in the Middle East. Uh, not to the United States. Uh, There's even cases of um, uh, U.S. military flights dropping off refugees in Qatar. So just to kind of highlight that the typical narrative we hear about resettlement is, you know, refugees getting on planes, and then that's kind of the end of the story. Maybe they come to the United States, maybe not. But in this case, in fact, it's more of a kind of outward push of displacement, and the resettlement process is a kind of much longer, arduous process happening uh, through kind of the administration of the United States. You you go over the management techniques, right, that has been used over a historical timeline here in the U.S. And you mention the fall of Kabul. And could you explain how that happened and our response to that? Yeah, uh, sure. So this is part of, you know, as I'm a historian, so everything's part of a much longer historical process. Please, uh, please. But of course, a fun thing you can do is if, if you Google the fall of Kabul, uh, there's two times it happens, uh, one in 2021 and one in 2004. And so the 2021 fall, of course, was just you know a few weeks ago when 
after the U.S. withdrawal or during the U.S. withdrawal, uh, the Taliban, kind of a political military force in Afghanistan, retook over the country, established formal control. But that fall could not really happen without the first fall in 2004, when the U.S. military uh, intervened, uh, came into the country of Afghanistan, overthrew the government, uh, moved the Taliban out of kind of political force and tried to establish its own government. So there's kind of these two, this timeline of, you know, 17 years or so really, I think, highlights the uh, reasons for this, you know, these refugee crises that this is about a U.S. military occupation and then a kind of response, you know, a decade and a half later. And uh, similarly, infer that kind of timeline, the uh, big move for resettling refugees, this has been kind of in the news a little bit lately, uh, from Afghanistan has been through this uh, system called the SIV process, the Special Immigration Visa process, sorry, Special Immigrant Visa process, which is only really in the news now, but it's actually been around for 15 years. Uh, it was started in 2006 as a plan to help uh, Iraqi and Afghan nationals who uh, face persecution as a result of working with U.S. occupying forces in those countries. Uh, however, the SIV process was notorious for uh, taking months and even sometimes years to uh, get approved. And so, of course, in this past month, the Biden administration, almost out of necessity, has devoted a lot of resources to speeding up that process. But that uh, dedication of resources has engendered a political debate in the U.S. Uh, over who you know deserves to be resettled, who is allowed to kind of claim these benefits from the SIV process. Um, and so that's really, I think, the center of the political debate nowadays is who, how and why can this SIV process be kind of put through? And that's not even recognizing the hundreds of thousands of people in Afghanistan who don't qualify for the SIV. So we're in kind of this liminal space now where tens of thousands of refugees caused by the U.S. occupation and withdrawal uh, can come to the United States but are stuck in Afghanistan and also even more are left without even those options. Got it. Can you talk a little bit about the criteria that's used for those who qualify for the SIV or get uh, special privileges in, in that sense? Yeah, for sure. So uh, it was started, like I said, in, in 2006 for anyone working with the U.S. Army. So people, you know, translators, uh, assistants, people helping like scouts and things like that. This is a this has a kind of a historical counterpoint. Uh, you know, again, I'm a historian, but uh, there was a similar process put in place in during Vietnam uh, to for those Vietnamese soldiers or translators who helped the U.S. Army. That was started in 2006. However, the application process requires it was something like 14 steps. You had to interviewed at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. You had to uh, talk with the U.S. diplomats. You had to go get papers sent back and forth. There was like a whole kind of arduous process to the point where the average time to get an SIV approved was three years. And so a lot of people who qualified for SIVs in, say, 2006 or 2007, uh, they couldn't even apply. It wasn't even worth it because by the time that they would have applied for them, and these are people who were you know, fearing uh, political persecution because of their actions. It would be years, so there's no real point. And there was a lot of political debates in the U.S. in the past 15 years to speed up this process. Um, I was just reading through uh, an article about this a couple weeks ago, and I didn't know this back then, but in 2016, there was a measure to expand the SIV process to allow it to become much easier and streamlined. That was blocked by Senator Mike Lee from Utah. Um, Senator, former Senator Jeff Sessions, uh, current Senator Chuck Grassley were staunchly opposed to the SIV process in general. 
a quote here I, I found from Rand Paul, a senator from Kentucky, who says, uh, I think those that speak English and are our friends in Afghanistan should stay and fight. So it was kind of opposal to even streamlining this SIV process. So it was made both, or it was made intentionally like difficult to administrate uh, for people to apply and get resettled in the United States. As the historian, as you say, uh, can we look at more of a historical context to the U.S. refugee resettlement program and the failures of it, the successes? I, I know this has a long history, you know, with the Bolsheviks uh, revolution and, as you mentioned, the fall of uh, Saigon. Looking at these different points in history, uh, where have we gotten it wrong and where have we gotten it right? Yeah, that's that's such a great question. Yes, the history of you know U.S. refugee refugee policy is long and confusing and complicated. I think the the most obvious comparison it, for a lot of reasons, um, some better than others, is Vietnam, uh, because in you know Vietnam there were a lot of similar underlying circumstances as to today in Afghanistan. There was a U.S. invasion that largely caused displacement. There was a long term occupation of the country that forced nationals to choose sides either with the United States or against them. Uh, and then, of course, near the end of the occupation and an evacuation, uh, followed by a quick collapse of the U.S.-backed government. So I think a very similar case of, you know, a decade or more of occupation and kind of relative status quo of, you know, violence and war as the status quo, and then a extremely quick occupation that left a vacuum, which is when the kind of most dire refugee cases uh, happen. And, uh, but I think the kind of big di crucial difference here, and this is something uh, a fellow historian, Amanda Demmer, has talked about a lot and very aptly, is that, you know, the fall of Saigon, similar to today uh, with the fall of Kabul, is, is not the end of the story. And that really it's, it's in the upcoming years, it's going to decide how this is going to look both for Afghanistan, for the globe, for the United States. So uh, Amanda Demmer writes about how after Saigon, there was a 20 year period where uh, the vast majority of Vietnamese refugees came to the United States. It was not in 1975. Around 130,000 Vietnamese refugees were evacuated in 1975. Uh, but over the next 20 years, another half million were brought to the United States under what's, what was called the ODP, the Orderly Departure Program. Um, and so I think the key difference uh, between then and now is that in 1975, there were a lot of debates about uh, in Washington about refugee resettlement, about a lot of kind of racially charged debates about who deserves to come to the United States and who doesn't. But there was a broader political consensus that the United States is a place where refugees deserve to be resettled, especially in cases where it's the United States' fault, right? Where U.S. occupation is what causes uh, refugee movement. And so, you know, there were bills sponsored by people ranging from the political spectrum, from like Bob Dole to Ted Kennedy, uh, who co-sponsored bills to bring refugees to the United States. This is, of course, different now, I think, where the possibility for like bi for bipartisan resettlement plans is much uh, much less possible. It's, it's much more partisan, even if, though, you know, all the polls I've seen is that across the United States, it's relatively bipartisan approval to resettle refugees, but in Washington, it's pretty partisan. And so uh, I think that's a pretty apt comparison historically for a time when uh, the United States both caused and then sought to ameliorate the effects in some in some ways of the the violence and trauma that it had caused uh but of course and this is kind of what i talk about in that washington post piece and what my what my research is about is that that narrative of 
refugees coming to the United States after the United States causes a, a you know a collapse of a government or a, a crisis overseas is really only one part of the bigger story. So that's you know that kind of narratives of like linear migration of like a Vietnamese refugee being evacuated coming to the United States being re resettled in Minnesota or something that really doesn't tell the whole story because in fact in the case of Vietnam there were uh, millions of refugees uh, pushed out of Vietnam in the first place moved to Laos or Cambodia by the U.S. occupation at first and then by uh, withdrawal of U.S. forces later and so there's you know most migrants and refugees globally do not just move from one place to the other. Instead, it's this kind of long, arduous track that takes years and decades in order to end up in a place where they can be resettled, whether that's the United States or somewhere else. So uh, just speaking to today, I think that it's really in the upcoming years uh, when it is are going to tell this story, right? Where if the U.S. is able to adequately address the kind of global resettlement issues of Afghans uh, caused by U.S. occupation, as well as, you know, those who don't even qualify for the SIV process is uh, what duty does the U.S. have to kind of solving these refugee issues that's going to play out in the upcoming decade. Right. And that makes me think about what's happening in Haiti today. Yeah. Right. Um, it's not necessarily that the U.S., were occupying that nation, uh, like the fall of you know Kabul and, and the fall of Saigon, but uh, you get this influx of immigrants and refugees, and the question is, what do we do? What do we do next uh, with the people who have experienced a terrible uh, earthquake, and then before that, the assassination of their president, and that sort of uh, destabilizes the, the country and they're, they're in need of work and food and shelter. Um, yep. So our approach as a nation, uh, I think the lines are a little bit more blurred and there's no real path forward uh, in terms of handling um, acute crisis like this. Yeah. And something like the SIV program wouldn't apply to situations like this. Yeah, I think that's totally right. I think it's, it's like the Another, you know, unfortunate but but good example of how, uh, you know, as you said, like policies and governance are in the United States, especially, are pretty inadequate to dealing with the complexities of movement. Because um, mm -hmm. there's there's cases, of course, right now happening on the the U.S. Mexico border where uh, there's Haitian migrants who hadn't lived in Haiti for years or decades. They had been living in South America or Central America, and then because of a variety of factors, they decided this was the time to try to move to the United States and kind of apply for asylum in the United States, people who have, you know, uh, good asylum claims, according to U.S. law, and then they're being deported back to Haiti, a place where, you know, they haven't actually been in maybe years, uh, uh, kind of complexities of, you know, nonlinear migration of this kind of multilateral migration where people are moving to either for economic or social reasons or fear of persecution. Uh, we have a really inadequate political system nowadays um, to, uh, and kind of always have, to, to deal with uh, that type of complexity. Right. Uh, and I was wondering, are you tackling some of these issues in this book that you're developing? Uh, it's, it's quite, quite the title. It, it packs a lot of ideas, moving people, refugee politics, foreign aid, and the emergence of American humanitarianism. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about the book that you're writing? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm trying. I'm trying to do a lot in it. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I think so. The kind of inspiration for this book really was uh, in these kind of issues that, that you're bringing up and we're talking about, which is uh, the the story I've always you know that is so essential to the American myth of as, as like an immigrant nation or America as like a place that resettles refugees is that you know America is a receiver of migrants that's like fundamental to the myth right like America was founded by immigrants this is a you know a trope that has become really central to the concept of of American identity um, but when I started looking because you know I'm a historian of the early 20th century and so I was curious about uh, these cases where there are a, a lot of global refugee crises in the 1920s. These are the aftermath of World War One, the kind of uh, fallout of these uh, collapse of these multi-ethnic empires. So the Habsburg, the Ottoman, and the Russian empires uh, were formed into the kind of modern nations that we would recognize nowadays. And that's the same time that the U.S. is putting in these incredibly restrictive immigration laws, like the most restrictive. Uh, racially based uh, immigration laws that ever been passed called the, the Johnson Reed Act or the National Origins Quota Act, which, you know, put explicit restrictions on uh, migrants from non-white countries. It, you know, it's, it, it's completely explicit. And so I was really in intrigued by that period, right? This is a time of global movement, like vast of migration, of displacement that would only ever be exceeded by um, the displacement after World War II. And yet it's also the same time that the U.S. is restricting immigration to the United States. So what the question I went into was, you know, what happened, right? Like, why didn't people come to the United States? Why wasn't it happening um, in the numbers? And so what I found was that it was an active project. It, the, the reason that, you know, the, I talk about humanitarianism in there is that uh, this was a time before the U.S. was kind of the preeminent global hegemon, right? And so the U.S. military... Uh, was not going out and invading other countries. I mean, we did in, in Latin America and the Caribbean, but not overseas in, in Europe or the Middle East or Asia. And so the kind of main interlocutors, the main people who would deal with refugees, deal with migrants, deal with people in other countries were American humanitarians. And this was a time when U.S. humanitarians uh, were very widespread, kind of the, the foundation of the modern NGO movement, uh, global NGO movement was in this period. And what I found was that a lot of these American humanitarians uh, would work with the State Department, would work with uh, kind of US policy officials, uh, foreign policy officials, diplomats, to make sure that refugees overseas would not come to the United States. And that there's a lot of these cases, the one, uh, one I talk about briefly in uh, that Washington Post article is this case of the, the Bolshevik Revolution and uh, hundreds of thousands of Russian refugees fleeing the Russian Civil War, which is, you know, between kind of Bolshevik revolutionaries and the kind of forces of the old guard. Uh, there were hundreds of thousands of those refugees coming uh, through Constantinople, which is now called Istanbul, but was occupied by the allies. And there was a general, you know, consensus among a lot of these people that, uh, oh, the United States is the place to go. It's a, you know, booming economy in the 1920s. Things are great. There's a lot of anti-communist, anti-Bolshevik sentiment in the United States that would, of course, become much more rife during the Cold War. But uh, a lot of these uh, anti-Bolshevik uh, Russians thought that's the place to be. Uh, but, of course, this was the same time when the restrictive laws are coming in place. So you have American humanitarian groups basically forcing these refugees to go to other countries, making deals with like the new countries of uh, Serbia and Estonia and kind of making these kind of backroom political deals to make sure that refugees would not come to the United States. That's kind of the broad thrust of the book is looking at 
a bunch of those different case studies of how U.S. humanitarians were like the front line of U.S. foreign policy in terms of dealing with migrants. And then what's really interesting, I think, uh, and important, is that those people, the uh, professionals who are working in this humanitarian uh, group, during World War II, when the U.S. is now fully back on the global stage, is kind of establishing itself as, you know, the global superpower in, in conflict with the uh, the first, you know, Nazis and then with the Soviet Union, uh, it's those humanitarians that become the leaders of America's like refugee agencies. Uh, so the, you know, a American humanitarian who worked for a, the organization called the American Relief Administration, he becomes the head of the International Refugee Organization. Another person becomes the head of uh, OFRO, the Office of Foreign Relief and Rehabilitation. Uh, kind of all these like mechanisms by which the U.S. was sending aid overseas formally through the government and moving people around in Europe after uh, the end of World War II is being administrated by these same people from 20 years ago who had worked so hard to keep refugees out of the United States. Um, and so that's kind of this, that's the short version, not super short, but uh, the short version of, uh, of the book and kind of tracking those changes and how as domestic debates within the U.S. Uh, continue and kind of uh, move more towards like openness and acceptance of refugees and immigrants, uh, how the uh, those domestic policies inform the kind of uh, mechanisms of U.S. foreign policy in the early to mid 20th century. Right. That is very interesting. Um, I think because, so. Because <laughs> <laughs> because what we're dealing with is honestly a, a clash of ideologies, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so domestically, there is one group who are saying, all right, we don't want a, a influx of foreigners or people with different cultures or people not like us. Uh, we want to maintain the United States identity of whatever that is. <laughs> um, but then also during that time, there was in the, the eyes of the, the government, the spread of communism mm -hmm. that's happening, right? So they use foreign aid and, and foreign humanitarian initiatives to help those who were close to these countries yeah. <laughs> uh, to show like, hey, we will help, we will support you, but uh, think the way that we think or start embracing the, the United States culture and ideology. Foreign aid was one of its uh, strongest and most prevalent forms of diplomacy uh, yeah. globally. Uh, yeah. So uh, I think that, that was a, a clash during that time, straight after yeah. the World War II, sure. two different ideologies. And that foreign diplomacy was uh, a vehicle that we used a, a, as a country. Yeah. And I think just, you know, generally that it's all part of the same, yeah, it's all part of the same kind of uh, apparatus, right? That hmm. I think typically or sometimes we we, set, we try to separate like domestic debates versus foreign policy debates or global mm -hmm. debates. but that these things are, are deeply imbricated with each other and you can't really pull them apart. Um, right. And even, you know, the big takeaway that I would want from my research or my book is to really just indicate that uh, we, we, I think we should move past like a, di a dichotomy of talking about uh, migration or immigration or refugees uh, in terms of like, you know, well, one side believes in restriction and the other is open borders. And those are the two debates, right? But really the, throughout US history, you know, there have never been open borders. There has never been full restriction. It's always been about um, in that kind of gray middle ground, uh, you know, where, 
really, you know, it's not a wall or an open border, but, you know, American immigration policy has been more like a funnel or a sieve, right? It's been about selecting people that are desirable or undesirable based on racial characteristics, ethnic characteristics, ideological characteristics. And if that's the kind of stakes of, of the, you know, centuries of American history, then going forward, what we should really, I, I feel like what we should be more sensitive to is uh, not saying, not kind of letting us fall into those, into that dichotomy of debate, but really say, well, what are we saying about America when we talk about uh, who should be let in and who shouldn't be? And what does that mean for like uh, our, you know, national identity or kind of our role in global politics? All right. Uh, so when is this supposed to come out? Do you know? Do you have a date? <laughs> when can I grab uh, moving people on Amazon? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's in the works. The, the plan, TV. yeah, the plan is to, you know, um, have have the manuscript done by uh, this and by next summer and start pitching it around by then. I'm not sure what the kind of timeline would be once once the contract is in place, but uh, the hope is by like 2023, <laughs> but this is the, the issue with academia is we have all this kind of, uh, you know, we have such long timelines, you know, I, I talk about hundreds of years of history. And so time seems so fungible to me. There's like, ah, two years, no problem. That, that's, that's, so, right. that's so soon. <laughs> right. Well, uh, hey, you know, we, we got some publishers who tuning in and this is a great yeah. idea. It's something that we need to have broader context to in terms of our uh, domestic policy versus international policy and how they both coincide and how migration uh, fits within that structure. So uh, giving a, a historical context to that helps us have a better lens to why we make the decisions that we do as, as a country. So yeah. I, I appreciate the work that you do. And if people want to stay on top of what you're doing or get in contact with your initiatives or future projects, where can they go? Yeah, so I'm, I'm on Twitter at uh, E underscore Kyle underscore Romero. Uh, I found, uh, I, I, it's a funny story, but I, I also own the Twitter handle for E. Kyle Romero, but it was too hard to find. So I have all those underscores now. <laughs> so yeah, at Sounds E good. underscore Kyle underscore Romero. Yeah. Uh, as you mentioned, I have that article in the Washington Post uh, that just came out in the, the Made by History section. And uh, yeah, I'd love to, you know, keep talking about this. And, you know, as uh, in response to you, I think, you know, the most important thing that we can do in academia is to try to bring our knowledge uh, to bear for the present. I don't think there's any point in doing what we do if it doesn't matter in shaping our times now. And so I'm really grateful for you uh, for holding, you know, kind of these places where academics and professionals can talk to each other and bring historical knowledge, legal knowledge, you know, anthropological knowledge uh, into discussion with activists and uh, people working right now. So thank, thank you as well. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.